0: wonderful text. And as you turn there, I want to again express our gratitude to Stan Quinn and Jean Cloer for filling in last week in the absence of Ben and Mingu. And I want to make it clearly known that I do believe that Ben and Mingu are wise ministers who contribute greatly to this study. Apparently something I said last week Uh, offended Ben's mother a little bit and I want to apologize to her. Ben is a great asset to this team. She will feel
1: a lot better now. (laughs) Yeah
0: well I'm glad to hear that. So we're going to continue our study of Ecclesiastes tonight. We're looking at chapter 3 and as chapter 3 gets started we come across one of the most famous passages not only in Ecclesiastes but probably in the entire Old Testament. And we're going to start right there. We're going to read the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So if you would join me in the reading of that text. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh 28 statements in these eight verses that amount to 14 different couplets of polar opposites. And this passage is is so fascinating to us because it it is poetic and it is deep at the same time. And so what is it that, that makes this passage so powerful? Actually, we probably need to begin with this question. It's a question Ben posed to me uh, before this study, before we gathered tonight. Is, is this a pessimistic view of life? Is, is Solomon here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and, and the, these eight verses, is he just looking at the world negatively? I want to start with that question, and I'm going to throw it to Ben to get us started as we investigate this unique section of Scripture.
1: You know, uh, when we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes thus far, we've seen... So much of it it has to do with the vanity of life, the vanity of work, the vanity of money, the vanity of all the pursuits that he had uh, pursued throughout his life. This preacher Solomon talking to the ecclesia, the the church of Israel. And throughout the whole book he's talked about all of these things that are worthless, are are meaningless, are useless under the sun. But as Jay and, and others have said, those things... Above the sun are the things that are not vanity, are not meaningless. Those things that are heavenly things, spiritual things. And so when we look at this passage, we have to understand that this passage does not stand alone. It's not like uh, there's the book of Ecclesiastes and then there's the book of Ecclesiastes 3 and it's a whole other context. No, it's, it's written within the context of the whole book that he's written thus far. Everything that comes before is all ultimately leading to this passage just the same as chapter 4 will be and chapter 5 and the list goes on. I think this passage may have been, uh, over time, taken out of uh, its original intent uh, because it's so, like Kyle said, it's so powerful. It's so poetic. It's so true. And so is he being uh, pessimistic? Is he just simply giving up on everything? And You know, there's a time to be born, a time to die, and that's it. Or is he just simply stating the truth? I think there's a difference here because we, it'd be very easy for us to just look at this and see that he's being very pessimistic. Or we could look at this and just realize that he's just being truthful. Now, I believe uh, a lot of people here, uh, if you ever get called a pessimist, what do you all automatically reply with? I'm a realist. Uh, some of you are smiling. I've heard some of you tell me that. If you're, if you're called a pessimist, you just say, well, I'm a realist. And what you're saying is, I just tell the truth. And I don't bend the truth. I'm not laughing about it. I'm just telling the truth. Well, maybe that's what this writer, the, the Solomon, is. He's just telling the truth about life. Listen, you're going to be born. And listen, you're going to die. Can you control either of those? You can't control whether you're born. You can't control whether you die. No matter how hard you try, both of those are going to happen. Both of those are going to happen regardless of whether you want them to or not. You can put all the lotion on in the world, but your skin is still going to wrinkle. You can do whatever you want. You can be as healthy as James Howard. You can be as... Big of a runner as anybody else. You know, my dad is a, is a funny guy. Growing up, there was a, a funeral home director that went to church with us at West Hobbs Street. And he had to deal with uh, all the deaths of the town, and sadly. Uh, but I guess to do that, you have to have a bit of humor. Uh, so this guy was a big guy. Big guy. And uh, my dad just like all the Hogan's, we're, we're big guys. So he would always come up to my dad and he'd say, buried another runner today. And it, would just, it was just their way of, you know, understanding that no matter what you do, the end comes for all of us. And that's exactly what the is saying. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted. And this is a whole list of opposites, of antonyms, Right? This is a list of all the different things under heaven. Like he says, there's a, purpose for every, there's a time for every purpose under heaven, verse 1. Notice the one more thing about this passage, this first eight verses, is that these are universal truths. All the way under heaven, these are universal truths, these first eight verses. It doesn't matter what region of the country you live in or what time you lived On this earth, all of these statements are true. There is always a time to weep, and there's always a time to be happy. And the list goes on throughout this first eight verses. But I think, like Kyle, I think think we have to look at this, these first eight verses within the context of the whole book. No, he's not being pessimistic, but just like he has been with the whole book, he's just telling the truth. This is a wise preacher, like we have said, who at the end of his life, is just imparting that wisdom that he has gained over the time that he's lived. These are fundamental, essential uh, truths that we can always lean on. Uh, And again, the message of these first eight verses is there's nothing you can do to reverse these facts. You're going to have times of weeping, and you're going to have times of laughing. You're going to have times of gain and times to lose, a time to tear and a time to sow, and all the list goes on and on. These cannot be reversed. They're going to happen to everyone. No matter who you are, what stature you gain, we're talking about one of the richest people who ever lived, one of the wisest people who ever lived. Still, all of these things are true. And I think he's not being pessimistic. I believe he's just telling us the truth. And that's how we should read this verse. And there's plenty of more to say about all of these individual things.
2: Yeah, kind of building on that. I'm trying to take my microphone. Building on that, I think, well said, Ben. I think there's a purpose. I think that's his point in going into this. I, I see Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 2 through 8 as the glass half full of... Uh, illustration that we often use. It depends on how we look at it. You gotta have a glass half full, some people are going to see it half empty, half full, some people are just glad to have water in the glass, you know what I'm saying? So, we look, we come to Ecclesiastes 3, chapter, chapter 3 verses 2 through 8, and that's how you're going to see it. You're going to, what we bring to the text is what we're going to, unfortunately, sometimes what we're going to bring out of it, and it's our own context that will, might, that might kind of jade how we see this, but I'm there with you. I don't think this should be necessarily read as a pessimistic view on life at all. I think verse 1, and I'm going to have to reference a verse outside of our, our reading here, but uh, verse 1 starts that there's an appointed time. So there's a, there's a purpose. There's a or there's an appointed time, meaning like I think what you were getting at, these things are just facts. There is a time to be born, there is a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal. Just facts of life. And you can look at that in a very um, Oh, what's, oh, man. What's the word? I just, I just got done driving from Nashville, so my head's a little foggy from the rain. What's the opposite of pessimist? It is an optimist. optimist. That's right. Thank you, Jay, for helping myself. All right, you can look at this in an, opti- an optimistic way, because you can, you, if you're at the valley in these passages, you can say, okay, well, there's a time for the opposite of this in my life. There, maybe right now I'm being torn down, but that what this means, or what this passage is telling me, is that there is a time to be built back up. And so I think we can come out of this um, very optimistically and very encouraged even. But what I'd like to get to before, before I move on is I think this is bookmarked in verse 11. Verse 1 says there's an appointed time of all of this, but verse 11 I think wraps up uh, the, the further point of this passage. There is an appropriate time for all these things. These things are going to happen, and these things need to happen. I think another translation, some of your translations might say, he has made everything beautiful in its time. I, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. With those who weep. And I think about the times the times where I, I'm at one spot and my friend's at another spot. I'm at the time of healing and my, my friend is at the time of destruction. Or I'm at a time of... Uh, of silence, and my friend is at a time of speaking, and we're at a different point in our lives, or even times when my wife and I are like that, or even in the youth group are like that, and stuff like that, and how we deal with each other when we're at a different spot in life than the people we're around, and how maybe sometimes because if someone's not the same spot I'm in right now, we look down upon them or because, they're, because they're riding life in a, in a good way right now. and I, I'm at the valley right now. We look at them, and, and we grow jealous of how nice and comfortable th- their life is. And so I, I think chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, as I wrap my, my thoughts up here, there's an appointed time, but there's also a, an appropriate time, meaning there's beauty in all of these. And you, and you look at some of these, you say, how can there be beauty in death? Well, that's... That's the beauty of being a Christian. When we lose those who yes, it's still painful to lose, but they're Christians, there's abundant joy and abundant beauty in knowing where they're going. And so once again, reaching above the sun to find purpose and uh, uh, under the sun, yeah, this is bad. <laughs> verses 2 through 8, it's a bad look at life. But above the sun mentality, verses 2 through 8, there's a there's beauty in each one of these. There's pride and, and there's a and there's a good time.
3: For all of these,
2: and so I think it's it's how we come to it and, and, and the mindset we bring to it.
3: I think this um, this is a great um, way of description of our life. I mean, I agree that it is a it's a truth about our life. I mean, about our life. I mean, our life is uh, full of these things, and uh, we can some some things we can choose the time, some things we cannot. And some things just happen and some things we can plan to make it happen. But the thing that we cannot avoid from, I mean, about these things, about these truthful things uh, of our life is that it is temporary. Everything is temporary. Everything passes away. So nothing under the sun is permanent. I think that is a great I mean, that is the truth that we have to get from our life. Under the sun, in this world, nothing is permanent. And that's, that is one thing that the author wants to talk about uh, uh, in the rest of the chapter. And also, that's the thing that uh, the author wants, to, uh, wants us, uh, his readers, to understand so that we can i mean so that the readers can accept the you know uh, everlasting thing the eternal thing and so there is a contrast between the temporary things uh, which are uh, our life on this earth and the everlasting thing which is prepared for us for those who please God please God in heaven. So that is the truth, and uh, the truth is the, uh, what the author is trying to
0: convey to the readers. And you know, when you look at this list, some of these are, are easy to, to accept, a time to be born, a time to die. But it's really hard to sit there and go, okay, there's a time to kill. Like, it, some of these aren't that easy to say, yeah, there's an appropriate time for that. Even though we understand that war might be a necessary part of life, it's not necessarily w- and ne- that war is a, ne- and a necessary part of the world, I should say. Not life, but the world. It's not necessarily something we're comfortable saying that there is an appropriate time for war. There's, we're, we can even be uncomfortable saying that there's an, an appropriate time to refrain from embracing unless we're talking about COVID, I guess. Hmm. But you look at that list, and not every item mentioned there are we comfortable saying there's an appropriate time for that. But I don't, think, I don't think Solomon is listing everything here because he commends it. I don't think he's saying that all these things are uh, appropriate in the life of, a, of a, someone who's following God. I think he's simply generalizing life, that this is going to happen in life. That, that life is going to have these things occur. So, it's not a, so as one commentator said, said, this is not a prescriptive list, it's a descriptive list. He's just identifying things that will happen. And so we shouldn't look at it and go, oh, God said there's an appropriate time for me to kill somebody, and then try to uh, figure out when that time is. <laughs> That's not what's happening here. Solomon is simply saying, here's a list of the things that are going to happen They're unavoidable. They're part of life. It's a descriptive list, not a prescriptive list. And so, uh, guys, do y'all have any other thoughts on this section before we transfer to, to the next section? All right, then, let's turn our attention to verses 9 through 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Let's start in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Now, the, the first thing I notice here is that Solomon p- poses a question that he's already asked and that he's already answered. So, if you look there at verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? That's essentially the same question that he asked back in chapter 1 and verse 3. He just worded it a little differently. In chapter 1 and verse 3 he said, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he kind of gives an answer to that in chapter 2 and verse 11. In chapter 2 and verse 11 he said, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he asked this question already, and he kind of answered it already, so why is he returning to it? I think the reason he's returned to this question is because he hadn't answered it with God in the picture yet. In the verses that follow here in chapter 3, between verses 9 and, and, and 15, he's going to reference God repeatedly. In fact, he's going to focus on God's work rather than man's work. So he's going to say, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man. He's going to say God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's going to say God has put eternity into man's heart. He's going to say man cannot find out what God has done, and whatever God does endures forever. And then he's also going to say that God seeks what has been driven away. The emphasis turns to God's involvement. And I think that's significant because the... the, the The verse that I think is the most important in this whole chapter, Jay has already alluded to, is verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. So you can go through verses 2 through 8 and look at all the things that happen, that there's a time for. Those things can't be appropriate or beautiful unless they fit into God's timing. I think what Solomon is trying to do here in his investigation of life, and in and, and his investigation of its meaning is he's trying to, to reiterate in a unique way here that life has no meaning without God. And the, and the unique way in which he's trying to emphasize that is by saying everything has an appropriate time in God's plan. God gives everything its right timing. In other words, God is like an air traffic controller. I've used this illustration in a, in a few sermons in the past. God's like the guy who sits up there in the control tower at the airport and is telling planes when they can take off and when they can land, where they need to take off from and where they need to land. He's giving the directions because he can see the entire grid. The air traffic controller can see all the planes that are in the air. They know, the, they, the air traffic controller knows what's going on that you can't see from your seat inside the, the plane as you sit out there on the tarmac and complain. But the air traffic controller, he is up there and and he's ensuring the safety of everyone who's who's under his purview. And sometimes in order to accomplish his objectives, he might have to make you wait. He might have to delay that flight. He might have to give different instructions to to different pilots. But it's all because he can see from his vantage point, what the perfect timing is for takeoff and landing. And I think that's a great analogy for God. He can see the grid you and I can't see. Did you notice in verse um, 15, Solomon said, that which is already has been. But they followed that up by saying, that which is to be already has been. That which is in the future already has. God sees perfectly past, present, and future. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can appeal to those type passages. God's the only one that has perfect timing. And so what I believe the message of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the first half of it is, is that we need to surrender our time to God. David once said, My times are in your hands. That's the mentality of someone who puts God on the throne. My time is in his hands because he's the only one that really perceives and understands and controls time. And, and so for me, when I, when I come into this section of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I see the emphasis really being placed on God as the one who understands timing.
3: I see it a little bit differently from uh, Kyle. Um, I think there is a... Uh contrast between the temporary earthly things that we are uh, engaged in. And that is God's, that is what God has given to the children of man in verse 10. And that is the business of human beings. But he also gave us the eternity in our heart that we have to seek, I mean we should seek God's eternity, eternal value eternal, uh, uh, eventually, salvation. And what is being contrasted here is that uh, God put us here on Earth temporarily, and, but he wants us to seek the eternal things, eternal value. That is the contrast, that is the uh, contradiction Our life and our existence on earth and what God wants us to do. Those two things are contradictory and the author of this book, Ecclesiastes, wants us to understand it and he puts these words uh, for us, for the readers. Uh, It is uh, uh, verse 14. I perceive that uh, whatever God does endures forever, obviously. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear for him. that which is already has been, that which is to be already, uh, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the key phrase. God seeks what has been driven away. This implies judgment. God puts the universal eternal law over all, and we have to follow it. Like Carl said, God knows the perfect timing, and we have to obey, uh, obey the rule, obey the law. But sometimes, I mean, many times, many people, the children of men, drive themselves away from God's law. And God set a day, God fixed a day in which he will judge those who uh, drove uh, drove themselves away from God's law. So what the author is trying to tell the readers to understand here is that, you know, even though God puts us here on earth for temporal temporary works, like the works, like the events that he described in the first eight verses, but God also, also puts the eternal, uh, eternal goal in our, heart, into our hearts, so that we have to get the perspective of God and God's will to seek the eternal values and God will reward us who pursue the eternal values in this earth, even while we toil for the temporary, temporary uh, things. So that's the contrast. Uh, our existence on this earth is temporary. And what we have to seek for and what we have to pursue after is God's eternal will, which is the salvation.
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. I think a, a, a phrase that jumped out to me that I think provides uh, meaning and purpose to, to all of this so far is in verse 11 as well, that I think that which, what you were uh, touching on, Mingu, he has also set eternity in their heart. And I think that that's in contrast, like you're saying, to what verses 2 through 8 were saying, there's a, a time for this, a time for that. It was very a pinpoint, this is, there's a moment for this, there's a moment for that. But then the contrast to that is that we have eternity set in our hearts. And that's why I think we, can, we, we strive to find purpose sometimes in, our everyday, in our, our everyday toils, in our work life, or the meaning of this, or the meaning of that. It's because we have something so much more set in our hearts. That's why, and it's odd that, and maybe this is his, he's come to this conclusion, but that's why Solomon isn't able to find purpose in pleasure, isn't able to find purpose in, in, in possessions or profits or wisdom or anything. It's because they're all temporary, and that's not what his heart is attuned for. That's not what his heart is set for. And just as in Genesis chapter 1 we are made in the image of God, verse 27 that's what we, that's what our heart, heart strives for. So no wonder when we try to fill that shaped hole in our heart, it doesn't, it's not filled with the possessions of this world. It's not filled with the, the, the pleasures of this world. It's because it's set on something so much higher and so much bigger than that. You know, it's, it's I think about a, a toddler trying to put that round peg in the square hole and just getting so frustrated, like, why is this not working, you know? I wonder how many times God sees us filling our lives with that that possession or this pleasure of this world and say, it's just not working. You know, it's like, why is this, you know, I'm just, I'm trying the same thing over and over and over, which coincidentally is the the definition of insanity. When you try the same thing over and over again, expecting a new result. And so I think that's what he's maybe getting towards, is that yes, there is a beautiful time, an appropriate time for all these. And then verse 11, like, he has set eternity in their heart. And I think that's the... What I maybe would say to the teenager is a game changer. That's what, that's what makes all the difference. That's why he couldn't find purpose. That's why at, at the, the end of all his pursuits he says vanity of vanities. This is all meaningless. And the other thing, also like you mentioned, verse 14 I thought really jumped out to me. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. And I think we can take a few things from, from that very quickly that first part, I know that everything God does will remain forever. To me, that just shows the, perma- the, the permanent nature of the facts of God. That in this discussion of an appointed time for this and a time that kind of waxes and wanes, there, there's a, a season of this and a season of that, but what God does will remain forever and that will not change. And the second one, there is nothing to add to it. Well that, what that makes me think of, it, it, it's complete. There's no reason for a 2.0. There's no reason for a, a, you know, a software update. There's no reason for the next. Because what he's done, not only will it remain forever, but there's no reason to add to it. It won't be added to. And then lastly, to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. They are secure. They're, they're forever. And they cannot fall. They are eternal and Nothing we do, nothing man does, can ever diminish or take away, or, 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 or
1: yeah, to take away from that. You know, when I read these, these verses here, 9 through 15, I see uh, two major things that God has given us a task. And what is that task? He says in verse 9, uh, What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Earlier, he talks about how God is the one who gave us the tasks to be growing and and learning and gaining in wisdom and working. And God, God is the one who gave us the task of work. You know, sometimes we don't understand that. Work, the idea of work, we talked about rest this morning. The idea of rest came from God. Well, the idea of work came from God. Why? Because in the garden when they sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, after he's already given the punishment to Eve, guess what he gives to Adam? The punishment for Adam. And he says, you will work all the days of your life. You will sweat by the sweat of your brow. You will have all these thorns pricking you. And he tells them how he's going to have to work the rest of his life. That's the God-given task. And guess what is not included in our God-given task? What he follows that with in verse 11. Within our God-given task, it is not up for us to figure out God's work. God gave us work to do, and we should be occupied with it. We should be occupied with things above the sun, as, as we've talked about. But what does not fall under that is us trying to figure out God's work. Why? Because as all the rest of it is, Solomon says it's a meaningless venture. You know, there's so many people that want to figure out what was God doing in here? What, what, what was God trying to accomplish by doing this or, or having it done this way? What, is, what does Solomon say? Except no one Find out the work that God does from beginning to end. That that, that reminds me of uh, what the Bible says about how we should simply understand that God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. Why did God give us work in the first place? Well, because the Bible tells us that idle hands are a devil's workshop. Whenever we're idle, we are simply putting ourselves Away from God, because God was the one who established us to be workers. That's the first thing, that God has given us a task. The second thing I see is that no one is able to figure out God's task. God's work. The work that God does from beginning to end, no one can understand it. Who is saying this? The second wisest man to ever live, the wisest man not named Jesus, is saying to us, no one can understand God's work from beginning to end. He tells us what we can't understand and then tells us what he can understand. Right there in verse 12. He goes from we can't understand God's work to verse 12, I do know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good. So he lists things that we can know. These are some things we can know. Solomon tells us he knows that it's better to rejoice than to weep. He has learned that it is better to do good than to do bad. He has learned that enjoying your labor is a gift from God. He has learned he knows that whatever God does, it is forever. It is not to be edited. And it's not to be edited because God has his reasons. Reasons that no one can understand. We have to submit to that. You know, that's one of the hardest things as Christians, is submitting to God's, God, God's sovereignty. Excuse me. We have got to submit to God's sovereignty because He has His reasons. He is the Almighty. He is the all-knowing. He is the all-present God. And so when we spend all of our time trying to figure out God's business, we need to start focusing on our business. Because we can't understand God's business, and we weren't meant to. So when we spend all of our time focusing on why God did this and why God did that, why does he allow this, why does he allow that? It's simply meaningless and useless. Because God is sovereign, and he does what he wants to do. And whatever we can know this, whatever he does was the right thing. God always does the right thing. And that's why he's not the one that has to give an account. Verse 15, God requires an account of what is passed, what we have done with our work. God has no account for him because he is the one who gave us the work to do. That's what I'm thinking about in these few verses.
0: Any other thoughts on this section before we go to the last All right, turn to verse 16 now, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 through 22. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Jay, what stood out to you about this section, or or what did you notice as we bring this one to a close?
2: When I'm reading Ecclesiastes, I kind of imagine uh, Solomon wearing two different caps. He's got two different thinking caps on. One is under the sun, and he takes it off, and he reasons above the sun. Well, verse, 15, verse 16, he transitions back to this worldly mindset. He puts his under-the-sun thinking cap back on. He says, Furthermore, I've seen under the sun." And then with that mindset, with, this, with no eternity in his heart, only thinking of the temporary, this is the, the reason that he comes up, the logic that he uses and, and where it takes him. And I think that's with, with that reasoning, this under-the-sun reasoning, where there's no eternity. Well, there's no purpose in things, all vanity is vanity, back to, to all those same, those previous mindsets. This is where he then gets to down in verse uh, 19. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beast is the same. What a, dangerous, what, a, what a dangerous belief to have. And But that's where men go to when they don't have this eternal purpose in their minds that there is no difference between man and beast, because we all are just born and die. And verse 20, and who would know? Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward? Who knows what happens to the, their souls afterwards? And when you when you, go, when you continue with that logic, imagine the inconsistencies man has to follow if man and beast are simply the same thing. Then who are we to, to kill them? Who are we? We're no better than them. You, you know, and so... I think this shows the, I guess the meaning, meaninglessness or the, the, the problems with the logic of man when eternity is not considered. considered. When the, the logic uh, of eternal purposes aren't on our minds, this is where we are led to. Well, we're no better than a beast in the field because we're born and we die. In verse 21, I have seen nothing. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? He's back into this downward kind of slope of thinking is the best a man can do is just finding a little bit of joy in what he's doing. And just try not to think about after you die, you're not going to know what happens. And so as we kind of see Solomon kind of go go off on this mindset, use this mentality to look at the world, and, and he swaps back over. To looking at the world through these glasses maybe glasses are a better illustration than caps uh, He's got his under-the- sunglasses on here, right? And he's seen them through that lens. But when he's having these glasses on, it, it's such a depressive mindset. It's such a depressive point that he comes to. For who will bring him to see that for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? And so tonight, as I reflect at the end of this, I am just extremely grateful that in my life I have been blessed to always have the eternal glasses laid before me even before I I was baptized even before I was a Christian I I had people in my life that helped me see things in the eternal lens and helped me find purpose in life when if I I hadn't had Christ in this situation if I didn't have the, the true joy of God to rest on in that situation you know I think I would have come to the same decision he comes to what's the point of it all and so I, I'm extremely grateful tonight that I've always had the luck of having those lenses next to me to look through and to, and to see all of life through. But it's a dangerous thing, and, and it's, a, it's a pity that some people don't have that. They don't see the joy and the true peace and purpose, true purpose in, in, in everyday life, and, and they don't have to rely on, on this logic.
3: Uh, uh, it's not uncommon for the Bible to see Uh, people without faith like animals. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse uh, verse 32, uh, Apostle Paul says this, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I'm uh, reading from ESV, uh, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Here, humanly speaking, in Greek word, as a human, as just a natural human. Uh, is a ESV translation, is a little bit weird, humanly speaking, it, it, it's, uh, it's not speaking, something like that is not in the original uh, language. So what Paul is saying is that without faith uh, by which I can be resurrected on the day of judgment, what what would I gain? What would I have gained when I fought against a beast in Ephesus? So the Bible uh, depicts just a natural person like an animal. So it is not different from that idea. Here, this uh, author of the book of Ecclesiastes presents. Uh, natural human being uh, like beasts. So without the, without faith, that is, without uh, righteousness, righteousness of God, without pursuing eternity of God, humans are basically like animals. So that's, that's the kind of uh, literary device uh, this author adopts for the readers to understand the strong word of God for them to be saved, for them to have the uh, understanding of God, for them to have the purpose uh, of life that God assigned unto them. So um, this section obviously I think obviously saying that you have to you have to seek God you have to know God and you have to do good according to God's will otherwise you are like animals you are like just like beasts so that's the message is very strong and God pointed a time I mean appointed a time to judge uh, to judge all of us, according to what we have done on this earth. That's the point. I think that's the point of this section.
1: You know, Mingu, when you're talking about uh, those who are in the world are are like animals, like you're saying with this passage here, I believe it's also true that in his investigation that Cal has called it of life, one of the main instances of his investigation that he examined was himself. And when he examined himself, he found all the same things he found in the world too. He's warning the ecclesia, the the ecclesiasties, the church of Israel, don't be like this. Don't search after the vain things like I did. Because when you do that, you're no different than an animal who cannot discern the will of God. Can an animal discern the will of God? No, what has God done? Verse 11, we always go back to verse 11 tonight because it's so key. It says God has put eternity in their hearts. Even though God put eternity in their hearts, we find verse 16. When he looked at the world, when he looked at himself, instead of judgment, wickedness was there. Instead of righteousness, iniquity was there. And like Jay was saying, when we talk about under the sun, absolutely this is true. When we look at the world, we've said things like this for so many years. Man, the world is terrible. There's so much sin, so much unrighteousness, so much hatred, so much division, so many terrible things in the world. But we have to understand that those things are also within us. He is not saying, I am righteous and God's not going to judge me because I'm righteous. He's saying, I'm right there with you. I'm under the sun. And from all my life, I have lived under the sun. Don't be like me, Israel. This is a letter to Israel. Do not be like me. Be above the sun. Because God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. And just like there's a time for all those things in the first eight verses, there's a time for that judgment. And it's coming. So instead of God's will, even though God set eternity in our hearts, which means he set righteousness, he set judgment, he set all the good things that he lists here, even though God set that in every one of our hearts, when we examine ourselves, we find the opposite. Or at least you should. You should. At least you should see your iniquity. Be able to own up to your own failure. If you don't, that's when you really lose your way. That's when you start to live under the sun, as we've talked so many times. And so, this is is the message of chapter 3 to me. That we can live above the sun, and if we don't, this is what's going to happen. And so, I think we have to understand also, like I was saying, Solomon is openly admitting he lived under the sun. I did it all. I didn't keep myself from one thing. And I wish I didn't do that. Don't be like me. It's a strong message that I think we can't forget as we live our life. That we need to learn from this letter same way he's writing to Israel we could look at it as if he's writing to us because no one tried more than Solomon did no one experienced more than Solomon did and so the message still rings true to us tonight and I think I think that's my takeaway tonight as we walk away from this
0: study um, not to be under the sun one final thought. It, it seems as Solomon is drawing this chapter to a close that he has, he has this view of life not having anything beyond the grave. You get that perception because he said to, in his heart that we're no different than beasts. But we have to remember that moments earlier, he said God has put eternity into our hearts. And moments earlier, He acknowledged the reality that a judgment is coming. And then if you skip over to chapter 12 and verse 7, he had a little bit of a different perspective there at the end. In chapter 12 and verse 7, he said, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Really, the thrust of Ecclesiastes is live with your life focused on that which is eternal versus that which is temporal. Realize that there is more to this life than what is under the sun. And so with that, I want to offer this invitation that if you find yourself focused on the temporal, if you find yourself focused on life under the sun, something needs to change. Because there is a day of judging coming. There is eternity to face, and one day your spirit will return to the one who gave it to you to face that judgment. Are you ready for that? If not, please reach out to one of us ministers or or one of the shepherds of this congregation so that we can assist you in correcting what needs to be corrected, or we can assist you in becoming a child of God. And with that, let us close out our time of study tonight with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful tonight for the opportunity to assemble. We're grateful for the opportunity to study your word. We're grateful for the insights and wisdom that Solomon spoke in this unique book. Lord, help us to live above the sun. Help us to live with the understanding and the appreciation that you have placed eternity in our hearts. And Lord, help us to rely on your timing. Lord, we ask that you forgive us of our failures and forgive us of those times that we have been too focused on that which is temporary. And Lord, help us to live a life with eternity in the forefront of our minds. Thank you for providing a way for us to to receive eternal salvation and help us to not take that for granted. It is through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.